And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. You are just moments away from the latest episode of The Bridge. It's Wednesday. It's Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth. It's Bruce Anderson Day. And hello there, Peter Mansbridge in Stratford, Ontario. Bruce Anderson is in Ottawa and You know, when I think about the world we're living in now compared with where we were like two weeks ago, the two of us, you know, used to kid ourselves and be kidded by others because we spent a lot of time looking at old Second World War documentaries. And when we do, we see these incredible scenes of destruction and despair and lineups of refugees at borders in great European cities and great European cities demolished because of the whims of a dictator in, uh, at that time, Berlin. Um, and wondering why, well, how can he get away with this? You know, how did he get away with it? Why didn't anybody ever knock him off? How did, the, how did this keep going? And now suddenly seemingly for most of us out of nowhere we weren't prepared should have been prepared but we're reliving the thing but now in the high-tech world of today where everything is immediate and you see things happening live but the scenes are the same beautiful cities some of europe's most beautiful like kiev being destroyed from the air being destroyed from the ground people lined up at border points trying to get out of the country, and I'm talking about lined up by the tens of thousands, people living in basements to try and protect themselves from the onslaught of Putin's army and air force. For no apparent reason, and it's just, you know, you have to stop and look at this and go like, what happened? How did this, how did this happen? How are we living what people like you and I used to do on weekends in our spare time, (laughs) reviewing something that happened almost a century ago. And now we're watching it in real time. It's, uh, you know, it's incredibly depressing and mind-boggling at the same time. Yeah, it's a really tough, tough period of time, Peter. And I've got a a grandchild that is expected to arrive later this week, a second grandchild. And I've been thinking a lot about the, um, the times that we live in. And you mentioned that we didn't see it coming. And I think that's, that's kind of true. And it's also kind of not true. I mean, we'd certainly heard and had talked about a little bit, you and I, about what was happening and what Putin was likely to do. And was he going to do it right after the Olympics and all of that sort of thing. But I think your larger point is, we live in uh, times that are both filled with distraction, the idea of a distraction economy where we keep on moving from one subject to the other because that's kind of how the information marketplace and the entertainment marketplace works these days. Um, and so it's it's hard for us to have our attention galvanized until there's a moment when there's really no other choice but for that to happen. And the second part of it is that... Um, you know, I'm seeing people comment that uh, 2022 has already been a worse year than last year, and last year was a worse year than the year before. And um, so we're dealing with what seems to be a cascading, almost never-ending series of existential crises. And I don't re- that there ha- there hasn't been a time like that 
in my life, I don't think there has been in yours either. We're not that different in age. Um, but it is, you know, it, it feels like the world order uh, has come unglued. And so I'm, I'm happy in a way that our politicians are really talking about that right now, that that is the, uh, that is not just a subtext of the conversation they're having, but they're speaking directly about um, world order. And just as a final note on that, I've been speaking with people who are very um, motivated climate advocates. And I'm very concerned about that issue, as are you. We, we both have talked a lot about it. And the IPCC, the UN agency, came out with its latest report this week, which was the most uh, disconcerting of all of the disconcerting reports that they brought out in recent years. And I saw that the, uh, what's the clip of the vice chairman of the task force or the committee that produces this report saying, look, everybody, there's no time, there's no excuses, you've got to focus on this right now, you can't put anything before this. And I found myself thinking, well, as much as I care about that issue, if the world order falls apart, we're not going to make much progress uh, on climate change. We need to secure the world order if we're going to make progress on climate change on a lot of other uh, priorities that we share. So, yeah, I agree with you. It's a it's a pretty rough time. And it's, um, you know, the only thing I see that's good right now is that the days are getting a little bit longer and the winter might fade into the background and COVID might, too. But, um, yeah, tough, tough week and tough month and tough year for sure. This issue of the world order is is really an interesting one because in some ways the world order is in better shape today than it was two weeks ago, uh, at least part yeah. of the world order <laughs> in terms of the way that what well, we've always called the West, even though it's you know much more than the West, uh, does seem to have its act together. It's, it's unclear to me exactly how that's happened or who's responsible for that happened. And if you watch... The American media, as you know, I did last night, and I assume you did a part of last night as well, watching the, did, yeah. the State of the Union address. The um, the Americans like to say, oh, this is all because of Biden, right? Like he's put the coalition back together again, and we're reliving times we used to see before the Trump era. Well, in fact, it's it's much stronger than it was even before the Trump era. I mean they have their act together on this to a degree. I mean, they're certainly uh, operating together on sanctions, on tough sanctions, sanctions unlike we've ever seen before on anything, Uh, tougher than the sanctions that were put in place against South Africa, tougher than the sanctions that were put in place in in other uh, areas of war and conflict um, uh, in in the past. So uh, on that sense, it's really good. As I said, I'm not sure who gets the credit there or whether they just all fell into this at the same time. But clearly, and you're correct in, in, in saying, you know, maybe we didn't completely see it coming, but certainly some people in those governments saw it coming because they've been working for months uh, to be ready for this moment, as opposed to going, oh, my God, look what just happened. What are we going to do? Well, let's have some meetings. They were they were ready to go from the opening, you know, volley from the Russian tanks. Um but the question will become, is it, is it enough? Yeah. Um, but uh, in, in terms of how they've put this together. Can you- I think it's been really impressive. I mean, I, I, 
I don't think we're going to know everything that we're going to want to know about how it came together. And, you know, the more important point obviously is going to be what's going to work. What will it take to um, protect Ukrainians and to uh, push back Putin and hopefully ultimately to see Putin removed from office and replaced by leadership that, um, that is different. Uh, but I, you know, I, I watched um, or I read uh, the piece that um, CBC, I think, published about Pierre Polyev's criticism of the West. And I found myself kind of reading that going, well, that doesn't um, doesn't really square with what I think I've seen anyway from my he, he basically said that the West has had a very weak response. Europe's had a very weak response. Uh, we should be all doing a whole lot more. And um you know, I, I, I respect the fact that he's got a different opinion and that we have a good debate and it's good that we have this kind of marketplace of ideas. But I don't actually think that a lot of people will look at how the West has responded and say it's been weak and pathetic. I think that people are now increasingly talking about what you just put your finger on, which is that if the sanctions and in particular the sanctions that relate to the wealth of Putin and his oligarch friends, if those sanctions don't bite quickly enough, how much more destruction and death can we tolerate before we feel compelled to step in uh, across that border between the NATO countries and Ukraine and take military action? And I don't think the answer, I mean, I understand what governments are saying about that. And I think it's the thing that they feel they're obliged to say while they're waiting to see the sanctions and other support measures um, start to bite. But I also hear the subtext being a lot of politicians saying everything, nothing is off the table in the future. And I actually prefer that resolve to something that feels more like we were kind of impatient to get into a more serious and extensive and potentially global armed conflict. Um, I'm not an expert in this uh, area, so I want to be really careful not to sound as though I'm one of those people who's kind of got opinions about exactly what military operations might make sense or not. I'm more of an expert in understanding what are the the tolerances and the preferences of the public. And uh, right now, I think that the most impressive thing for me, in contrast with what um, Mr. Polyev says, is the sense of unity of people outside um the area of conflict um, to stand with uh, Ukraine and the Ukrainian people to see their bravery, to see the passion that they have for defending their country. And I think there is a reflection that there are fascist forces, there is disinformation, there is a challenge to the world order, and maybe we need to wake up. And maybe we have woken up and maybe we are going to uh, draw a line at this point in time. Uh, and so I'm uh, it's hard to feel optimistic with the news and the pictures that we're seeing. Um, but if I have any optimism in me about what we're watching, it's it's about that. It is about the sense that we're rallying. And uh, um, I, I saw some of that in Biden's speech and. Uh, I found myself a little bit perturbed that the references were, you know, always to the United States and the UK and Canada gets left out. And I actually think we've been playing a pretty, uh, a pretty effective 
uh, role in this, including the role of our deputy prime minister and, and finance minister, who um, seems to know a fair bit about the uh, how the financial sanctions uh, bite and maybe more involved in that conversation than, than, than we know at this moment. At least you remember to say Canada, which is a step up from some past presidents. I think it was Bush. Bush Jr., who uh, you know left Canada out of the list of countries he talked about in terms of the coalition against um, Al Qaeda uh, right after nine eleven. Right. The um, I I am I am intrigued about this this discussion surrounding well, what if they aren't enough, and what do mm-hmm. you do? And you see some retired generals, uh, both in Canada and the United States and in Europe saying, you know, they got to go for this no-fly zone. they got to go for it now. They shouldn't wait. Uh, Where governments have resisted, convinced that if they put in a no-fly zone over Ukraine, um, that it will immediately, if not sooner, lead to uh, uh, nuclear weapons being uh, fired from the Russian side and then responded to from the West. Now, you know, I think there's a lot of, and a lot of people, like, you know, I, I get mail, I'm sure you hear it too, from people say, like, why aren't we doing anything? Why don't we knock out that convoy? It's just sitting right there. You know, they always show us these pictures in past, uh, you know, whether it was Afghanistan or Iraq or wherever, they, they, they take great pride in showing us what they can do from the air to knock out convoys. Why aren't they doing it here? Um and I think there's there's some confusion um, about no-fly zones and wondering, well, what exactly are they? Uh, I mean, listen, first of all, no-fly zones exist all the time. There, there's, you know, there, there's one over Buckingham Palace. You can't fly over Buckingham Palace. If you're ever flown out of Heathrow and you're taking off to the north, if you didn't move a little bit, you would fly right over Windsor Castle. So it veers off usually to the the west a little bit. You still have a great view of Windsor Castle down there on a clear day, but um, but you don't fly right over it. And it's the same with big sporting events uh, that happen around the world, including in Canada. They create no-fly zones for that immediate area. They don't want airplanes, um, you know, for security reasons, flying immediately over certain places. And when... Air Force One comes to Canada. There's a no-fly zone around around it and over the airport. When when that happens, they don't allow other planes to take off or land at 15, 20 minutes either side of the landing of Air Force One. Those kind of mini no-fly zones exist. In a military situation, a no-fly zone, in the case of what people are saying should happen here now, would include all of Ukraine and would be against any Russian aircraft flying over they're bombing this would stop that from happening but they would be intercepted and shot down by uh, nato forces if they didn't respect the no-fly zone well then bingo you're into it as you said yeah maybe it's going to come to that maybe it is going to come to we're into it i think that there has been uh yeah as i said i i don't really know what the right choices it feels to me like we're following a path it's not just let's make it up as we go along but rather a series of sequentially stiffer measures and more uh, lethal support uh, to help ukrainians in the fight and the language has become more 
uh, strident as it has um, been evident that uh, the West is unified. Uh, and I think that the indications are, you know, that people are now kind of looking at this and going, okay, there's going to be some carnage in the world economy because of these measures. And so how do we make sure that we don't find ourselves destroying more economic opportunity at home than we want to? And you heard a little bit in Christy Freeland's remarks yesterday and in, in President Biden's remarks about that, that you can tell that they're a little bit anxious about whether or not there's there's that. But I think the point that you're raising is um, is probably squarely on their radar screen, which is that if you say, how about a no-fly zone in an area that is twice the size of California, um, similar in size to Texas, that's a very big area. And what it really means is that you're up patrolling and that you're ready to shoot down. And I don't know what the truth is, but I listened to a lot of experts in uh, Vladimir Putin, and most of them seem to be saying, He's paranoid. He's desperate. He's evil. He doesn't care. He will use whatever tools he has at his disposal to protect his position. Uh, And that he may be becoming more paranoid and desperate because of the financial pressures that he now knows he faces personally with all of the money that he's got with his oligarchs, his personal money um, under, under, uh, uh, duress or inaccessible to him. And by the way, if you have a chance, uh, Peter and and uh, listeners to see an interview, I think it was on PBS with Bill Browder, who is uh, quite a well-known expert who went through some very, very difficult uh, times in his life dealing with Putin and corruption. Um, I saw that interview in the middle of the night, like I watch most things these days. Uh, and it was a really compelling interview. He, this is somebody who really knows about that money. And he was, I think he was in London. He had just been meeting with the British Parliament yesterday, talking about more sanctions. And um, the fellow who was interviewing him, I think it was David Isaacson, was saying, do you, you know, you seem to know a lot about the oligarchs and their yachts and their homes and everything else. And he said, could you walk around London and point out the homes uh, of the people who should be or are going to be added to the list. Uh, and he said, oh, yeah, I, I have. And I know those names and we're adding those names and the, those houses are are being seized. So I think uh, I, I got off topic there. But where I was going with that is that if the pressure on Putin personally is ratcheted up, if the oligarchs who hold his money are saying we're kind of screwed here. Um, and then if we add in this no fly zone, does that have a greater chance of making him back down and stop the war or a greater chance of pushing a nuclear button and, and, and increasing the war. And I think it's so tempting for those of us who feel anger uh, at what's going on and despair for the people whose lives are at risk to say, let's take all the measures that we possibly can. And at the same time, knowing that for the people who have to make that decision, uh, they're playing potentially with uh, with a much bigger cost in human lives and a much bigger conflagration. So I don't. I, I I'm sure it's a very difficult choice that they face. I don't think it's easy at all. You know, your your mention of the London real estate market uh, is one of the reasons that the Brits were not the last to come on board with the sanctions, but had the biggest struggle with it because. 
it's going to collapse that that London real estate market. I mean, the high end of the London real estate market is all is most exclusively, if not owned by the royal family, is owned by the oligarchs. I mean, they got right? a lot of they got a lot of uh, land and and uh, and buildings there, and it drove prices up um, enormously, and that's why it's so incredibly expensive to to live in um, you know downtown London one of the reasons anyway um i do want to pick it we got to take a break but i i do want to pick up on this issue of putin and how he manages to survive by this because when you look at the at the world headlines and you look at the resistance on the streets of moscow and other russian cities you go like how is this guy holding on like why is nobody making a move to unseat him in some fashion Mm-hmm. So we'll talk about that um, in a moment when we come back. But first this. Hello once again, Peter Mansbridge in Stratford, Ontario. Bruce Anderson is in uh, Ottawa. You're listening to Smoke, Mirrors and the Truth on this episode of The Bridge. And you're listening either on uh, Sirius XM Canada, Channel 167, Canada Talks, or on your favorite podcast platform. You know, we're not experts in world affairs. Uh, we're not experts on history. Um, although we spend a lot of time talking about it and, and our downtime, our free time, you know, reading uh, great books about our history and, and world history and watching uh, documentaries on television. And there are there are some fabulous documentaries uh, that take you back, you know, more than 80 years now to, to World War II especially, where there's lots to learn from and lots of parallels to look at. And one of them, of course, is the survival of dictators, whether it was Mussolini, whether it was Hitler. How did they manage to survive? As once, well, two things happened. Initially, People in their countries resisted what was going on and felt it was wrong and, and, and saw terrible clouds on the horizon if it was allowed to continue. That's why the first major attempt on Hitler's life was in, I think it was 38. Um, there were four in total. Uh, they're considered like major attempts uh, to take his life, but none of them worked. Um and you look at it and you go, the frustration on those who were immediately around him. I mean, clearly he had some sycophants, just as, as Putin does. Uh, but there were others who saw, this is not going to work. This is not going to happen, and we are doomed if we let it continue. But they let it continue. And the same thing seems to be happening here because it's, you can no longer say there's no resistance in Russia to what's going on. There is resistance. But how far that resistance goes or what it's capable of doing uh, to ending the situation is unclear, especially when you, you know, you, some of you will laugh at this. It sounds a little overly simple. But when you look at the pictures of Putin in the last week's 10 days, at that big hall, long table, somebody described it the other day. It looks like a bowling alley, you know, where, where he's at one end all by himself, and at the other end are his whoever they are, his senior advisors, his cabinet, his military officials, and we're talking about way at the other end. This is a big table, um, and you go, well, 
nobody can get close to him. And the kind of cover story is it's all about COVID. He's a germaphobe. He doesn't want anyone near him. And, you know, Russia is still suffering greatly from uh, COVID. But it's also, don't forget, this is the country where a tap on the back can be a needle of poison in you. And there's no doubt that's happened. And at his direction in the past, in the recent past. And he must think, I don't want anyone near me. I know what they're capable of being able to do. But whatever, until something like that happens or there there's some kind of putsch where he's taken out of power, it's hard to see him changing. You know, this does not seem to me like the kind of guy who's going to say, well, you know, this didn't work, so let's uh, let's just withdraw. Let's back down. Let's negotiate right. uh, our way, you know, with our tail between our legs back out of Ukraine. I, I think that's right. I think that this doesn't end well for him. It seems to me, uh, even if uh, his military occupation of Ukraine succeeds in the near term, I think the consequences uh, will be worse than what they felt in Afghanistan. Uh, in the sense of a constant insurgency supported by the rest of the world um, with constant economic pain of a, a, a range and a degree that they didn't experience before. And with these internal pressures at the same time, Peter, you, you, I think I see the internal pressures coming in three areas. I kind of feel like if there was a, if the, if the oligarchs, wherever they are in the world to whatever, um, Caribbean harbors they're in right now on their yachts, if they all set up a Zoom call, they wouldn't be all saying to one another, what can we do to help Vladimir more? They'd be wondering how bad is he going to make their lifestyle? Uh, And is there a way that they could replace him with somebody who wouldn't put it in jeopardy? I think that um, Navalny, uh, who um, is the most high profile Russian uh, dissident politician uh, who's been in jail uh, at Putin's hands for no reason other than opposing Putin. Uh, I saw I was tweeting today um, saying the way that we'll defeat Putin is for all of us to end up in jail in the paddy wagons, I think is what he said. Uh, and so this notion that people are going to take to the streets, even if they're going to go to jail, uh, that may reach a new uh, level. Uh, of willingness that we've never seen. We're seeing some images that suggest that that's the case as well. I think there's also real questions about whether or not the military um, that are, you know, the the young men who are basically on the ground in Ukraine and are kind of faced with this notion of if you don't follow orders, um, your life is going to be horrible. Uh, but if you do follow orders, you feel like you're doing something that's completely wrong and unwarranted. Um, that's a different that's a difficult situation as well so i think all three of those kinds of internal pressure and dissent um will manifest themselves increasingly over time and i guess it takes me to a place where i go well how he responds or whether uh, russians in some fashion or another uh, solve the putin problem for the rest of the world remains to be seen uh, but I, I definitely think that um whatever he thought he was going to accomplish um it looks like he's ending for, he said he's going to end up in a worse finish uh, than he imagined. The, the problem, of course, is that, that many others might uh, along the way, too. You know, the Navalny tweet today um, is a sign itself 
of what must be going on inside Russia right now with all this. Because the very fact that he was able to get that tweet out is quite something at a time. I was surprised. Yeah. 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 I mean, and I heard yesterday, I don't know if you, you saw this, but the Russian government website keeps getting taken down uh, and then they put it back up. And it just feels to me as though the, um, the regime doesn't really have everything kind of bolted down and ironed out and organized to the max. And um, that gives me a little bit of hope as well. I do think also that um, the kind of the Putin and Russia on display right now, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, this kind of test between fascism and democracy and how it seemed as though um, in recent years, um, people who were on the democracy side of that were maybe a little bit complacent, weren't as well organized, weren't as able to kind of marshal their arguments. Their arguments sounded more um, kind of highfalutin and remote, whereas the fascists were better organized, better funded. Their language was more biting and they were rallying people. And we saw you know, some of that in the convoy uh, stuff that happened in Canada. And I think that is the, you know, it's the second most important fight here after the fight to protect Ukrainians. I think it's the one that we can't lose sight of after this conflict is over and hopefully over soon and in the safest possible way for, for people. Um, And, and I don't think that we should assume that the fascists um, are going to lie down on it. They're going to continue the fight. I mean, we saw Max Bernier yesterday call a leader of a Canadian political party who used to be Canada's foreign affairs minister. What did he do? He called Trudeau a fascist and Freeland a Nazi. And, you know, I know some people were shocked by that. Um But he's been kind of driving in that direction for a while. And what shocks me a little bit more, and, you know, I know our conservative listeners are going to hate me saying this, but I wanted to hear a conservative party figure stand up and call that out. I want a conservative who will say that's wrong that we can't talk about each other like that, that we can't throw those kind of terms around without uh, regard for the consequence in our country, that disinformation aspect where well, people start to go, well, is she, is she really a Nazi? Is he really a fascist? I hadn't thought about it that way. Like the conversation goes off the rails unless we put it back on the rails. And it's up to politicians, not just on the left and the center, but politicians on the right to help with that, especially as we think about this, this colossal kind of challenge where fascism wants to plant roots and, uh, and grow uh, in places around the world, including here. Uh, yeah, every once in a while, you got to kind of remind yourself as, okay, where's this stuff coming from? Who, who was this guy, in this case, Max Bernier? Is he not the foreign, former foreign minister who you know, left highly sensitive documents in his girlfriend's apartment or something and yeah. had to, you know, and then resigned as a result of it. You know, this is the same guy, right? Who has all Unlamented, great words for had a else. really undistinguished career in cabinet was generally known as lazy and, and kind of uninspiring. Well, 
certainly has some attention following him now. Um, we we got to be careful on, uh, you know, back to the main topic. We got to be careful. We're not historians. We're not military historians. We're amateurs who are interested in in that story. But I'll tell you, as somebody who's covered war and conflict for most of his career, going back to, I guess, the Falklands in 82, and many since then, you know, there are certain things you see unfold at a time of war, battle, fighting, conflict, you call it whatever you want. Uh, we're in one of those times now. And one of the things you learn from watching these things, there are certain things happen in the first 24, 48 hours from the aggressor nation. And they're kind of in the in the textbook of how, how militaries operate. You know, you take out or attempt to take out command and control positions. You take out or attempt to take out the communication systems like TV stations. And you... Um, uh, you you go for airfields. Airfields, yeah. Now, th- that's all supposed to happen like in the first 24, 48 hours. Those are the first targets. Right. Now, s- the Russian military are not stupid, right? The people who run the Russian military, the generals, you know, have a fairly distinguished history. But they made one attempt of those three. They went after an airfield outside of Kiev. Uh, with their commandos on day one. Uh, they took it for a, a few hours and then lost it. I think they have it back again now. There there was no, at least from what I saw, attempt to go after Ukrainian command and control, which would seem to signal they didn't even know where it was. Um, and uh, the third one was... Something. Airfields? Airfields, I mentioned. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, TV, communications. They didn't yeah. do that until yesterday. They knocked out a TV yeah. tower. Yeah. Uh, and the TV has been this incredibly powerful weapon for Zelensky. Um, so you go, like, what, what's going on? Is this deliberate on the part of the Russian military? Are they deliberately trying to screw this up? Uh, because it would certainly seem that way, and it raises these you know, issues about is there a mole inside the Russian military or the Russian security services uh, because the Americans seem to know everything that the Russians are about to do before they do it. Um, so I, you know, well, it's like the airfields, uh, right? Yeah. I mean, we're looking at these satellite pictures of 40 kilometer long convoys that seem like they're stalled on the roads. Those are kind of sitting duck targets for the other side of this conflict. Um, and Presumably, if you control the airfields, you can solve your supply line issues using aircraft, at least to some degree. You don't need to have everything kind of caught up in these these convoys, which are um, proving, I think, more difficult than the Russians may have expected in terms of how that works. So I agree with you. I think that it seems as though it's a, a clumsy uh, and unexpectedly clumsy uh, military operation by the Russians. And I would add to it that the the diplomatic effort uh, by the Russians, the psyops and the propaganda effort has also been uh, pathetic. Um, you know, I, I think I would have expected it to be better uh, given the strength of the response of the rest of the world. I looked at the text of the message put out by the Russian ambassador to Canada. I don't know whether he put it out yesterday. I just saw it this morning. 
but it was, you know, it was, it was really lame. Basically it was uh, we're, we're in there to wipe out Nazis and uh, it didn't, you know, it was, it was sort of bellicose about the fact that people were kind of against it and everything else. And I went down as I think, you know, to the Russian embassy in front of the Russian embassy on the weekend um, with, with many, 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 many other people in Ottawa to protest um, and to, um, and what I found really interesting was that um, people were full throated. They were, really angry at uh, the edifice that represented Russia and the people that they assumed were inside. And um, they didn't hold back. There was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of yelling. There was a lot of passion and what Russia has to say about it on the other side is so weak and ill-considered and poorly argued. And that, that you really kind of feel like, this doesn't have the feel of a country that had a, a kind of a strongly figured out kind of diplomatic initiative alongside its military effort. Um, we saw the images of people walking out of the UN uh, yesterday. Uh, I don't know. It's more than 150 uh, representatives walked out and I don't think they could have made a good argument, but I think they could have been expected to have been better prepared to make the diplomatic argument than than they seem to be right now. Don't you think? Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, I mentioned the other day and I think it's, <laughs> I think it's true. Um, you know, it's 60 years since the Cuban missile crisis, right? And yet every week we still find out new things, especially on anniversary years as this year, about what actually happened during the, those 13 days in October of 62. What was going on behind the scenes? We're still finding that out. And so to assume that we know what's going on behind the scenes right now on both sides uh, would be wrong because, uh, you know, there's lots to find out and it may be um, beyond our lifetimes before we do find it out. Mm-hmm. Um, so we should all uh, we should all keep that in mind. And uh, I feel kind of like I've really enjoyed this discussion today, but it does feel like, you know, two guys in a theory, you know, <laughs> like, that, like that old <laughs> Uh, you know, when it first started, that moving company, which was like two guys in a truck. <laughs> we don't know anything about moving, but we have a truck. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, well. They've come a long way since then. Um, but, you know, I think a lot of people are, are trying to figure this one out right now. And uh, we're no different than that. We have s- some degree of expertise. Expertise may be too strong a word, but we ha- do have theories. And uh, I think that's um, uh, keeping the discussion going right now about what's going on or what may be going on and where this may be leading, uh, I think is really important. And we'll keep doing that this week, obviously. And we look forward to Chantel joining us on Friday to, to focus again more on like Canada's role in all this. Um, and that'll be on Good Talk on Friday. So, Bruce, thanks for this today. Um, and we will you uh, bet, Peter. We'll talk again soon. I'm Peter Mansbridge. This has been Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth on The Bridge with Bruce Anderson, a wonderful Wednesday, as we used to say. And uh, we'll be back in 24 hours.